Last week, we started going through the quadriga. Y'all remember these movements? Last week, we talked about the historical movement, right? The historical piece is that, uh, that part of Bible study where we want to get right into the, to the text and learn the context of what's going on, the historical background, the structures of the text. I'll, I'll go back and, and, and remind, remind us of some of those structures that we talked about. Um, they're literary devices, if you remember the... Uh, our Bibles are structured with verses and chapters and uh, pericopes, those headings and so on. The Greek and Hebrew did not have any of those things. In fact, in the original writings, there were no spaces even between the words, right? It was just pure text all the way through. Um, so how did they structure their text? Well, they did that through literary devices. Uh, we talked about parallelisms, repetitions, chiasms. Uh, inclusios, sandwiches, and so on. As we worked through that, uh, we, we finished with a, a little talk on context. And this is one I don't want to spend a lot of time on because uh, this is something we are always going back to. And, and every part of Bible study, context is king, right? Um, it is always to be front and center. We have to know what's going on in the context around the passage we're looking at and then and beyond. But context works like this. We have all these different contexts. If you start with the, the text here in the middle, whether that would be a, a word or a phrase or a verse at the very center, and then it moves out from there. So you have your target text, and then you want to expand to the paragraph. So what are the verses on either side saying? Then you want to move beyond the paragraph to the thought, right? So if, if the, the thought is more than one paragraph, it's um, perhaps a, a long, like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, multiple chapters, Matthews 5 through 7. Uh, so you, you'd want to go back and look at the whole, the whole section. So you want to expand from there. Then you want to go to the entire book. And then you want to go to the author's other writings. So if we're in John... First, second, and third John should matter to us, right? They, they should help us understand what's going on in the Gospel of John. And the same with the book of Revelation, as it's also written by John. And then we want to expand to the rest of the New Testament or to the rest of the Old and then to the whole Bible. And then once we, we do that, then we want to begin to look at outside sources, such as um, information on geographical background, historical background, cultural background, and so on. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on that, but are, are there any questions on context as we'll continue to come back to it? Okay. So I don't know if you have your notes with you from, from last week, but there was a couple things that I left in the notes that I, I couldn't finish because of time. So I wanted to, to touch on those briefly before we move on. Um, but grammar within the text really matters. Um, and the whole verbal system or noun system of both Greek and Hebrew are very in-depth uh, and very detailed. The verbal system for, for Greek, for example, I don't remember the exact number, but the, the word 
there's like a word that they always use. It's called luo, which looks something like this in Greek. That word is always used to, um, it means to loose or to let go, or if you're holding on, luo is to loosen. Um, that, that word can be spelled over a hundred different ways in Greek, depending on the person, the mood, the tense. Um, there's all sorts of ways. So to, to do that is, is very difficult to try to memorize or, or work through the entire verbal system. But there's two, there's two pieces or two aspects of, of verbs that are, are very important. Um, and that's an indicative verb, right? Um, an indicative is stating something that is true, okay? So if you just follow verbs throughout a, a, a book, you'll find these indicatives, indicatives, and they state what is true. God loves you, right? So, so in, in Greek, that'd be something like um, theos, which is God, and then it would go to um, agape, or depending on the person, if it's you, it's agapes, so it's the plural you and all of that, and that would be an indicative verb saying this is true, right? Then you have imperative verbs. The imperatives are to say, love your neighbor, right? So that agape then would be spelt differently, and there's a different feel to it. One is a statement of truth. One is an imperative, which is a command. In the New Testament particularly, oftentimes in, in Paul's letters, it's very clear how he begins his, his letters with lots and lots of indicatives. This is what's true. This is what's true. This is true. This is true. And then usually, uh, if it's in Ephesians, it's just over halfway. If it's, if it's in Romans, it happens at chapter 12, he switches. And there's like this big therefore. All of this is true of you. Therefore, now go and live this way. And the verbs all change to imperative verbs, for the most part. They're still indicatives mixed in. Uh, but it's a pretty cool system when we think about it, even with a theological import for us to say we are to, we are to live out of and, and, and um, be motivated by that which is true, right? We don't work backwards. Paul didn't start with the commands in order to attain something that is true, but we work out of something that is true. So as you work through different um, passages, you can just pay attention to some of those verbs and try to figure out what's going on here. Is this stating something that is true or is this a command? And then there's all sorts of other things in there. Uh, which, is, which are helpful as well. There's, if you turn, if you have it, I put some tools for study on, on here for you. Uh, at the bottom, again, these would be on your notes from last week if, if you don't have them. But I put a, a handful of websites, and these are websites that will help you study the Bible. And uh, if you click on, on a verb, and the first one I put there is the Blue Letter Bible, it's a free software online that you can click on, on a verb, and it'll tell you if it's an indicative verb or an imperative verb or, you know, uh, some of the many others. So that's a great resource, Blue Letter Bible. This will help you kind of dig in to, to the original languages. Uh, Logos Bible Software, that's like the Cadillac of Bible softwares. Um, so if you want to invest, if you're going to spend money on it, I would do it through Logos because it's, it's the best. It's It's fantastic. Biblia.com, that's like a free version of Logos on, online. It's very limited, but there's, there's, it's helpful tools. BibleStudyTools.com and Bible.org, all of those have really helpful um, interfaces that you can dive deeper into Bible study. So I just wanted to put those there for you. Also, um, as you study, 
A good study Bible is helpful uh, in a lot of ways. It's, it's kind of a, a running commentary on, on passages, and then oftentimes they'll have articles in the back, and they'll have a lot of the historical background, a lot more than your normal Bibles. So this one, this is a really good one, the ESV study Bible, and it will usually have five or six pages of information about a particular book before, um, in the introduction. So does anybody else need notes? Okay. Well, we have extras. Thank you. So yeah, great introductions to the book. So this will help with some of that historical background and cultural background and so on. Uh, and it's, it's a theologically heavy uh, or focused, I should say, study Bible, um, which, which, is, which is great. Then the Archaeological Study Bible, this is a NIV one. This is awesome because it'll give you information about uh, the, the locations in which the text is taking place. So it really follows the, uh, the travels of Jesus in the Old Testament and tells you history about the land and the cultures and so on of that time. And then this is also a really great one. This is the Zondervan Study Bible. It's an NIV, but it's not to be confused with the NIV Study Bible. This is the Zondervan Study Bible. And this one is one that focuses more on what we're talking about with the biblical theology or the connections and themes in the Bible. So that's a helpful resource as well. Um, and then Bible dictionaries, that's another helpful resource. This is a really great one, the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. And it will have an overview of every book of the Bible with different themes. And then the second half uh, picks up on all sorts of different themes in the Bible. So you've got you know, holiness, the Holy Spirit, healings, glory, faith, whatever it might be that you're interested, it'll have an article on it. So these are really helpful. You can look at these more later if you're, if you're interested. Um, yes, okay. And then word studies. I actually was going to do a word study for us on some Bible software, and then I, I tried it, and it's just way too small on the screen, so you wouldn't be able to see anything that I'm doing. Um, however, I want to do just kind of a quick little word study on uh, and, and kind of just walk through the process of what that would look like. So if you were on Blue Letter Bible or if you, if you have a concordance um, and you want to, to work through some of these word studies, this is something, somewhat what it, what it would look like. Uh, so look with me at Exodus 40, verse 29. This is right near the end, right at the end of the book of Exodus. The tabernacle has been completed, and God's presence is imminent, close by, and he's given us some final instructions. And it says, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered it, uh, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses, Okay. So if we were to do a word study, um, and, and word studies are fun because whichever word kind of pops for you, you can really dive in and say, I wonder what this is, what this is saying. So obviously you can do a word study on any of these words. Um, but burnt offering is one that I think is really fascinating, and I've talked about this before. But it's, it's mentioned twice here. Burnt offering is the Hebrew word olah an Ola offering, and it is a, a noun. It's describing something, right? The altar of burnt offerings, um, and it's, it's that noun is used, 
about 300 times. And it's almost always translated as burnt offering. The thing that's interesting about the Hebrew Bible, let's just say these were Hebrew letters, which they're not. But I don't remember how to spell that in Hebrew. So the Hebrew um, works with vowel pointing. So they'll have different things like this, or like this, or like this, or like this. All these different things. And those were added later so you could understand how to pronounce it and, and so on as people were seeking to write it down because in the original, if, it was, if none of this was there, you would just have the consonants and no vowels in Hebrew. So they added those later, again, so that we can understand it. Um, the consonants of ola in the, in the noun form are, come from uh, the same Greek or Hebrew word ola in the verbal form. The verbal form is used over a thousand times. And the verbal form is actually right at the root of what the word means, and it means to ascend or to go up, right? So what we have done with the noun, instead of translating uh, the, the sense of the word at its root, which is to ascend or to go up, we've described the action, which isn't always a bad thing to do, but this, a, a better translation, honestly, would be to say, and he set uh, the altar of the ascension offering, right? At the ascension offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meaning and offered it on the ascension offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. So there is inherently within this word burnt offering, it means to, to go up, to ascend. Um, the, the idea in the Hebrew language is is the, the soul goes up into the very presence of God to be with God, right? So when we offer a sacrifice and a burnt offering, that sacrifice goes in our place onto the altar, which we know this from the sacrificial system, right? Um, there's a process where you lay your hand on the animal and you actually almost transfer your identity onto this animal and it goes on your behalf. Because if you go, you'll get burnt up, right? And that's not good. We're sinners, we don't want to die, so he's made a way for us to come into the presence of God. And it's through a mediator. Um, so you lay your hands on, you kind of um, put your identity, yourself onto this animal, you sacrifice it, and it doesn't just burn up, which is what we think when we read it, it ascends. It goes right up into the presence of God, and God accepts it, and it's a delight to him, and so on. So that's an interesting aspect to this word that you find with a word study. And then you can say, well, I wonder how the Septuagint translates this. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. Um, and it's, um, well, shoot, now I forget. Um, I want to say albino, but that's not quite right. Do you remember what it is, Kyle? It's, it's something close to that. This would have been way better if I could remember the word. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. Anyways. This, this word is used thousands of times in the Old Testament, and it's one of the most common words, or no, hundreds of times, not thousands, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and it's one of the most common words in the New Testament to ascend, and it's what speaks of Christ's ascension, right? That he, he goes up, he ascends into the presence of God. We, we were looking at it in John chapter 3 this last week, where the Son of Man, he descends and ascends. This is that same word. Uh, that is used for burnt offering in the Septuagint. 
So then we say, oh, well, that's really fascinating because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. And what does Christ do? He takes upon himself our sins. He, we identify with him. He identifies with us. He went to the cross for us as a sacrifice. And then he ascends to the Father where we go with him as being vicariously and, and, and spiritually connected to Christ as one with him. So even when we go back to the burnt offerings in Exodus and Leviticus and throughout, we say this word is actually pointing us to Christ, that he is the one that ultimately ascends as all of the offerings in the Old Testament point to Jesus. Anyways, so that's, that's one of the process, that's the way to do a word study. And then you'd go out from there and you could say, well, how else is this used in the Bible? How else is this used in ancient literature? And so on. All right. I have another example there of propitiation. Basically, what that means is it's the same word, helisterion is the word, and it refers to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, where the blood would be splashed, right? So we could translate this as, he is the mercy seat for our sins. So he connects, again, this is a word that connects Christ to the Holy of Holies and the sacrificial system. All right, any questions on any of that? Okay, then let's move on to typology. This part of, of the movement, we are not in any hurry to get through. We'll take a few weeks on this uh, because this is the one that, for one, is going to really open up the, the avenue to the moral and eschatological reading. But this is the one that... Um, that really helps us make sense of the text. This is the one where your heart begins to burn as you see how Christ is revealed all throughout the texts. Um, so we're going to spend time on the, on the T, which is the typological reading, and then we'll move in a few weeks to, to the moral and to the eschatological. So if you would, I, I have the text in your notes, or you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And I wanted just to spend a moment here because I think this passage really highlights the importance of this step in Bible reading, okay? It really highlights the importance of a typological or seeing Christ at the very center of all of Scripture uh, for us. So let me read these verses for us. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought, to have, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Then chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and, the, and of faith toward God, and the instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Right? This passage is really incredible because there is a charge that he is giving to the people to move on from maturity, on to maturity. Move from the, 
the basics of your Bible reading, essentially is what he's saying, when he refers to, let us move past the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let, let, us, let us move past this from the foundation of repentance from dead, uh, dead works and so on. Not that these things are not important by any means. We don't leave them as if uh, we move on to something completely different, but we go maybe deeper into them. Uh, we move on without leaving them, okay? But he, he challenges us to say, you, you need to go deeper than this. You ought to be eating milk that, or eating meat. This stuff here is, is the milk of the word, right? So he says at the beginning, about this we have much to say. And this is the key for the passage. So what is he talking about? What is he talking about when he says about this we have much to say? And this question is one that exists here, right? It's a context question. What is, what is he talking about when he says about this thing, this topic? I wish I could say more. Okay. Yeah, right. He makes a connection to Melchizedek in chapter 5 right before this, saying that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He picks this up again in chapter 7 and, and continues to develop it some, but not as much as he would like. Melchizedek is a very elusive and fascinating character from the Old Testament. He only shows up twice, once in uh, G Genesis 18, I think, um, where Abraham meets him after rescuing Lot right, from Sodom, he, he's on his way back, and Melchizedek is there, and Abraham actually uh, eats bread and drinks wine with him, which would be a communion sort of thing that's going on, and then you have um, a tithe that is given to him, uh, and he, he just, he gives reverence to Melchizedek, this priest of Salem, and then, which is Jerusalem back then, then he comes up again in Psalm 110, which is the Lord shall say to my Lord, you know, you may sit at my, my right hand until I make your enemies your, your footstool and so on. And he says, and you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? So this, this character of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews, is picking up and saying, oh, let me get into this. And remember, Hebrews is a sermon. It's, in, it's a, a sermon that has been written, transcribed into a letter that is sent out. So he's preaching to the people, and he wants to get into Melchizedek, and he goes, you, you, you folks don't understand. <laughs> I would love to say more about this. In fact, let me talk about why you don't understand this. Because I have a lot more to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Since you have become dumb of hearing is what it means, right? You can't hear. You become dumb in your hearing. And though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should know these things by now. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles and elementary doctrines of Christ, and he goes on right? He's saying, listen, I would love to tell you more about Melchizedek and Jesus, but you can't understand it. You need to grow up. And what he's talking about is typology, right? This is, this is the reading that we want to be good at. He's talking about making a connection between this character from the Old Testament and Jesus and how Melchizedek prepares us and points to Jesus as a signpost that's blinking. And there's all sorts of beauty and um, there's a whole mosaic around Melchizedek, but the people couldn't see it. He couldn't explain it to them because they were dull of hearing. But we need to move on. So for us, we, we should take this warning 
this, um, this charge seriously. We want to be mature readers. We don't want to be in the place of the Hebrew church, whoever this was, listening to this preacher. We don't want to be the ones that are saying, ah, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. We don't want to be childish in our reading. Peter Lightheart says, you don't want to be Peter Pan readers. Never want to grow up, <laughs> right? We want to move into maturity and so on. And the way we move into maturity is, again, never leaving the elementary doctrines as if they're not important. Of course they're important. But we must dive into the scriptures, and that's what we seek to do with that next movement. So uh, are there any questions on that? on this passage in Hebrews. Yeah. True. But so yeah, they had access to the Old Testament and they had teachers um, that would certainly be teaching. Excuse me. Um, and when we read through Hebrews, there is an assumed knowledge of the Old Testament that should put us to shame, right? I mean, they, they, he is just assuming, he's rolling through a lot of this work, uh, assuming that they have a basic understanding, or a fairly deep understanding from our, our standpoint of the Old Testament. So, and they would have heard those stories, they would have come up with those stories, they would know the sacrificial system like the back of their hand, uh, and so on. So yeah, very familiar with it. Good question. Others? Okay. So we, we talked about this definition before of typology, but typology is a literary hermeneutical device in which a person, event, or institution in one passage of Scripture is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in another passage of Scripture. Right? So it is Melchizedek in Genesis 18 and or maybe 19, 14, my goodness, I'm way off, 14, and then um, Melchizedek in Psalm 110, and then Melchizedek here in Hebrews, right? That is making those connections there. That is what, what typology is all about. So how do we do this? Well, ultimately, we look for Jesus. Um, we want to find Christ in the scriptures wherever we look. We want to find him. And the way that we do this is by looking for patterns, Okay, patterns in Scripture, so repeated vocabulary, repeated themes, themes of uh, baptism or ascension or atonement, uh, repeated scenes, right? So this scene, this story that was just told, this, this piece reminds me of another scene in the Bible, which I'll give us an example of that in a moment. We want to pay attention to the structures and try to locate those and so on. Look out for creation themes or exodus themes or redemption themes, Numbers in the Bible matter, right? So it's, it's, it's just paying attention to the detail and it's seeking to, um, to take hold of it and say, man, I want to stare at this thing and look at this thing until it starts to make sense to me. And trusting that the divine author has woven Christ into all of Scripture. And when we do this, it is, it is what makes the hearts burn within us, right? This is, the, I think, the most exciting part of Bible study, <laughs> Is, is reading through this and saying, my goodness, look at all these connections. It's, it's, it's all testifying to Jesus, and this is incredible. So the best way to do that is we just, you just read the Bible, and you read it some more, and you read it and read it and read it, 
And you read it asking questions, looking for patterns, looking for, for these things. Um, and as we do that, we mature in our faith and we mature and we begin to see Christ's image coming out throughout all, all of the scriptures. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to do this, um, either me showing you how to do it, or, and we will break up into groups uh, next week and do it together and then discuss it, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right, so uh, let's look, turn your pages, and I have uh, a, an example of a scene in the Bible uh, that connects to another scene in the Bible, right? Psalm 23. I love the psalm. One, it's, it's beautiful, and two, it's very familiar to us. So there's not a lot of work that we have to put in to understand what Psalm 23 is saying. Um, and that should not be Mark 11. That should be Mark 6. So I apologize. It, does yours say 6 or 11? Oh, good. Then mine's the only wrong one. Mark 6. Okay. So Mark 6, if you have your Bible, uh, do I? I don't think I put, no, there's a ton of, let me make sure. Yeah, I don't have it in there. Okay, so Mark 6 is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, turn there, and we'll make a couple observations, and then I want us to just kind of look through it somewhat quickly, because we'll, and, and I'll kind of help us along with it, but look for some themes, some vocabulary, some aspects of Psalm 23, which is in your notes, that might be connected to Mark 6. So Mark 6 starts, and I'll, I'll, I'll help us out in the first 13 verses, though, no, excuse me, the first six verses, though they matter, this is where Jesus talks about a prophet has no honor in his hometown. They're, they're not connected to, to what we're going to look at directly. So if we were to start at verse 7, this is when Jesus sends out the disciples two by two, essentially to preach the gospel. And you go into the home, and if, if they reject you, you walk out, you dust your feet off, and you say farewell. So the disciples go out, they do that, they got their staff, they've got their cloak, they don't have their money bag or anything like that, they need to be fed by those who are with them. The, um, then they help the sick, right? They cast out demons, anoint with oil many who were sick and healed them, right? So there's this exorcism, these healings that take place, and then... The scene changes very quickly to, I think, one of the darkest passages in the whole Bible, to be honest with you. This account of Herod's um, decapitation of John the Baptist is gross, right? I mean, it is, it's awful. Uh, but you have that, that section from 14 to 29, and then in verse 30, the scene changes again. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him, yada, yada, yada. So what is that? What structure is that? We talked about it last week. I'm a good lip reader. You had it right. A sandwich, right? One of those Markin sandwiches, right? So the scene, the bread on the first one ends in verse 13. And then in verse 14, you get to the meat of the sandwich. And then in verse 30, we go to the other slice of bread, which makes a sandwich. All right? So within sandwiches, we have to remember that the two sides and the middle, they interpret each other. The middle interprets the outside, the outside interprets the inside. They work together. Mark doesn't do this by accident. He didn't forget what he was saying and then 
write about hair and say, oh yeah, I forgot about that story and I have to go back and finish it. This is a structure that he puts in there to help us understand what's going on, all right? So they return and immediately as they return, that second part of the sandwich is the feeding of the 5,000, right? And then from there, it, it goes very quickly. It's all one big scene, though the pericopes there might make us think that there's something else. But in verse 45, it moves to Jesus walking on water, right? And then in 53, he goes to the Gennesaret and begins to heal people there, all right? So this is, this is kind of the overall picture of what's going on in Mark chapter 6, where you have Jesus sending out two by two. They go, they preach, they heal, they cast out demons. Then we have Herod killing John the Baptist. And then we come back to the disciples' return to Jesus. They're all excited about what they have done. And then it, that part of the story leads right into the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus walking on water. And then more healings. All right? So that's the overall scene. So as you kind of look through this, are, are there anything? Are there any verses or phrases or thoughts or ideas from this passage that might connect with Psalm 23 that you see? You can just throw out ideas. You might see some that I haven't seen, so I want to hear them. Okay, so you got besides still waters. So go up a couple verses um, from that, and we find out that the disciples were having a very difficult time getting across the water because the wind was rough. They, were making, they weren't really making any headway. It was a choppy, choppy seas and so on. And then Christ shows up, and it's still. It's calm, right? So he leads us beside the still waters. I think that's, that's, a, that's the right connection. What else? Anything else? A verse, which, which verse, 31? Uh, yeah, 31. 31? Okay. What's a desolate place? You're on to something, but what's a desolate place? Okay. That's true, but the word is actually wilderness. It's a dead place. It's a desert. Which is very interesting because it's used three times. Right? Mark goes out of his way to tell us about the landscape of this healing or this feeding, that's desolate in 31, it's desolate in 32, and it's desolate in 35, right? But then you go to 39, and what does it say? Green grass. So it's like he's going out of his way saying, this is a horrible place, this is a dead place, and then there's green grass. And he has over 5,000 people sit down on it. Desolate wilderness in green grass, which is um, quite literally green pastures, uh, those two things don't belong together, yet somehow they do. So what's the connection to Psalm 23, waters on that? Lie down in green pastures. So you've you got them sitting down on green grass in 39. And this is a supernatural, uh, or at least mirac- some, some, uh, somehow a powerful, miraculous thing. that They have 5,000 people sitting down on green grass in a desolate place. Okay, what else? That's good. Okay, yep. So you have the Lord is my shepherd in verse 1, and then you have 
the sheep without a shepherd, and Mark, and Jesus essentially says, I will be their shepherd. <laughs> he comes in and does his shepherdly work. Emily. Okay, that's good. And if you go, if you go down uh, on that, that passage uh, with, to verse 13 of the disciples being sent out two by two, what do they do? Yeah, they anoint many with oil. So you definitely have a connection there with them being sent out in that anointing piece of verse five. Good, what else? Verse 5 of, of what? Ah, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? That's what the whole feeding is about, right? It prepares a table. Absolutely. What else? Ah, yeah. Ah, Okay. So then, yeah, you can kind of have this, this piece with the, the valley of the shadow of death. Where would that fit in? Well, this whole scene is happening under the shadow of John the Baptist's death. That is casting a shadow over this entire scene, which is why it's part of the sandwich. It interprets the outside. So that's, that's a great, great connection. What else? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then what happens with the baskets when they're done? They're overflowing <laughs> as well. Yeah, they eat, they're filled, and the baskets themselves are overflowing. Anything else that we're missing? Very good. Yep, exactly. The Lord will provide. We don't need to go out with all of our provisions. The Lord will provide. He is our shepherd, and he sends out the disciples without any food or money, trusting the Lord will provide. You will not have any want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anointing with oil, and then he anoints our heads with oil. Very good. Bread, overflowing cup. Yep. Good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so you, you lay out this feast structurally within the gospel, within the chapter. You lay out a feast in the presence of Herod, right? This just stomach-turning scene, and all of a sudden you're eating right after that, right? Mark knows what he's doing here. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Very good. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're on your staff. That, that piece is kind of, um, there's, there's, it feels like there's a, a charge as you walk through that, you know, that he is, he is present. That's good. I think the only thing that we haven't gotten from Psalm 23 is 23.3, the first part, he restores my soul. Where might that be found in this passage? Oh, Shimko, were you talking about 23.3 as well with the paths of righteousness, that charge piece? I think it works as well. Well, I think, I think it works, yeah. Sending them out two on two, right, two by two on a path of righteousness. Where God sends us, that is the path of righteousness. So we need to follow it. That's what the disciples did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then in verse 42, it says that they all ate and were satisfied. They were hungry, weary, and then they ate and they are restored. They are filled up. So here's a scene in Mark's gospel that Mark, uh, that Mark wants us, as he writes this, he wants us to be thinking of Psalm 23 as well. He's taking Psalm 23 and saying, oh, maybe it was one of his favorite psalms. And, and he breaks it down and he puts it all there for us as, as a scene. There's themes that connect, whether it be the anointing with oil or the shepherds or the green pastures, right? Uh, the, pres- the presence of my enemies, the shadow of death, all of those things are very intentional for Mark, and this is how he is writing his gospel. He does this all throughout his gospel, over and over again. He does things like this. So for us, as we read through, if we come to something like they anointed many with oil, uh, there are all sorts of places that our minds should go where oil is used. So whether it's um, setting apart for holiness, as you mentioned, Emily, or uh, the oil in the lampstands, which is light, or um, healing the sick, or whatever it might be, right? Oil is used constantly. It's got a very strong connection all throughout the Bible. So when we come to that, we should be thinking, how else could we make connections throughout the Bible? Any questions on that? No, not always. Not always. Sometimes it's really nice. Nice and neat, and other times, sometimes they work backwards, you know. So, yeah, not always. That's right. Right, so then that gets the context. Yeah. So that gets, that gets the context, right? So we say, okay, these words are similar. Where else might there be connections here, right? So, so some of them are going to be more explicit. Like there are some themes and words in the Bible that are charged. When you come to them, uh, it's pretty easy to see what's going on, 
the anointing with oil in Psalm 23, if, if that's all it was, no way you couldn't make that connection, right? I mean, you could, but it's to, to what end? But if you say, well, let's, let's keep playing with this. What else does Psalm 23 say other than anointing with oil? Well, he also talks about, you know, the valley of the shadow of death. Well, my goodness, I mean, that is screaming from the middle of the passage. Um, and then he says, well, and it starts, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus says, here are some sheep with no shepherd, right? All right. And then so he takes the role of the shepherd. And then, I mean, as you go through it, you start seeing, oh, wow, this, this is not a coincidence. All of this is working together. Um, and this is one of the more, I think, one of the more challenging ones to work through, you know, to be able to see this. It's, but if we, if we read Psalm 23 and we've got that thing just into our bones, and then we come and we see a shepherd, you know, we're going to think of Psalm 23 or John 10 um, or, or David, right? I mean, we'll think of these, these big moments of shepherds in the Bible, and the Lord is saying, well, here's sheep without a shepherd. I'll be the shepherd. So where else is the Lord our shepherd? Well, Psalm 23 is usually the first place we'll go for that one. Uh, so it's, it's just, there's no tricks. There's no, like, you put stuff in and pull a handle, and then it comes out for us, right? It is, it's like music. It really is. You just have to learn to listen to the music. Listen for the undertones. Listen for the repeated themes. I mean, the text just, um, it's just singing to us. Uh, and music will play with, uh, play with different sections. You know, it'll leave something unresolved here, and then later it'll come back and resolve it. And there's almost a, ah, thank you for doing that, you know? Like, I needed that to be resolved. Felt like this tension within the music because it didn't resolve for us. Um, but if you don't ever listen to particularly classical music, you'll never pick up on those things. So when someone explains, it's like, where do you, all I hear is notes, you know what I mean? But once you get an ear for it and you start listening, saying, oh, my goodness, what's going on here is, incredible. I mean, there's personality to music, right? There's humor to music. There's, uh, there's fear in music. There's all sorts of character stuff that, that's going on, which, unless we are trained in it, it just goes over our heads. So, <laughs> so we want to be good readers putting our ear to the text and saying, I want to hear the music of the text. You know, I want, I want to know what it's saying. I want to pick up on it and, and not let these things pass over. So when we come to something like that, it's like, oh, wow, that's a very similar tune. I hear something there that's, that's very uh, normal, you know, uh, feels normal. Imaginative? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yep, we just, we've got to get it into our bones. And that's, that's one of the, so over the last couple of weeks, particularly even, even for this, I've been reading a lot of the church fathers, and particularly Augustine, right? Because he is, I think he's one of, if not the best Bible reader in church history. Like, and not to say he's always right or that he's the ultimate authority, but what he does, how he works with the text is unbelievable. And he, his big thing when it comes to reading the Bible, for one, is we, we read the Bible in community, which is what we've talked about. Um, and, and two, we, we read the Bible in community in Christ. So Augustine's like number one principle, rule, a piece of advice before you read the Bible is to understand the, the totus Christus, the whole Christ, that we are together, united as one, and we are together in Christ. 
And it's there that we read the Bible, not individually outside of Christ, right? So when we do that, we're looking for Christ everywhere. Not only Christ, but we're looking for the whole Christ, Christ and his bride, the church. And for Augustine, the two passages that jumped out um, for him was Saul's conversion when Jesus knocks him off the horse and blinds him on the road to Emmaus. And what does he say to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And he wasn't. He was persecuting the church. <laughs> but they're one. Right? And that's, that's not just a theory. That's not just an idea. It's reality. We actually have to believe that. And then the other passage he goes to is Matthew 25 with... Um, the separating of the sheep and the, the goats. And then he turns to the, to the uh, yeah, Matthew 25. He turns to the, to the sheep, and he basically says, uh, you have taken care of the poor, you've fed the hungry, you've da-da-da-da-da-da. And as much as you've done to the least of these, you have done to me, right? And then he turns to the goats, and he says, you haven't fed the poor, taken care of, been hospitable, da-da-da-da-da. And, he said, and they said, wait a sec, and, and you haven't done it to me. Right? And then the goats say, wait a second, we've never, you know, ignored you. And he goes, ah, but you ignored the least of them. Therefore, you ignored me. Right? Jesus' thinking is that he is one with his bride. Augustine also says that Jesus doesn't need the bride to be complete, but he chooses to be complete with his bride. Right? And that's his prerogative. So we need to believe him on that. Right? And, and actually read the Bible as the church. And then we read it as scripture, which is God's word to his church. And we read it as one in community, and we read it in Christ. And when we do that, we, we see Christ coming up all over the place in the Bible. I don't know why I started talking about that now. We're doing it. That is a perfect example of it. We're not, we're not training for it. We're doing it, right? The church coming together, and let's look at the Bible together. Let's look at Psalm 23, and let's look at Mark 6, and let's see what we find. That, that, that's, that's it. We're not, we're not training to do something later. We're actually doing it now. And then this can happen in the smaller forms with you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and your family, you and your friends, your community group. Get people together and read the Bible together. You know, like this can, this ought to be worked out constantly. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what it looks like for sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's far it's far more normal for them, right? They think this way. The whole Bible's like this. I mean, remember the the, the connection graph that we showed with all the cross references? That illustrates it really well. This the Bible just works together constantly. Um, but their culture was one that thought associationally, not scientifically. Or if we were to write it, we would say, okay, what are the facts? 
What's the, what's the chronology? What's, what's the exact right whatever, you know? And we put all the, the bullets in there of all the facts, and then we kind of form a story around what we know to be the facts. Uh, the biblical authors thought, what does, uh, associationally, this is like this, this is like this, right? And, and that's, they wrote with that sort of mindset, which is very different than us. Yeah, it comes back to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, within Mark, the structures of Mark are absolutely phenomenal. So, so certainly, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to work all that in and, and do that. Because the, the chronology, the timeline's off, you know, from Jesus' ministry and John's uh, death. Uh, it's off by um, a year or so. Um. You know, another thing that Mark does, right, he has these timestamps all throughout his gospel, and he has seven of them. So if you have seven timestamps, that should cause us to, to think, oh, that's seven is creation, days. And it, the whole gospel takes place at night, right? So each timestamp say, and that evening, or it was evening, in the evening, evening, until the resurrection, which is the first morning. So it's like the whole gospel is done in the dark, and then the resurrection comes, and it's the first day of the new creation, uh, and Christ rises in the morning, uh, which is it's just another structure that he puts in there to, that the original readers certainly would have grabbed onto way quicker than we, than we do. Okay, let's move through a few more. Let's see here. Okay, so is typology a biblical concept? Did I just get really loud on this? Or is it just me? Okay. Maybe my ears cleared, and now I can hear. <laughs> All right, is typology a biblical concept? Is this way of reading the Bible that we just did with Matthew 20, or <laughs> Psalm 23 and Mark 6, is this the way we ought to read the Bible? And there are a handful of, of verses that are out there that would say yes, and then the overall testimony of the Bible would say yes. But the verses that we've looked at before, I'll bring them up again. John 5, 46, where Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So this is a hermeneutical anchor principle that Jesus is saying, when you read Moses, you ought to be looking for me. Because <laughs> if you would have done that, you would have believed Moses, and you would believe me, because Moses was talking about me. right? But you don't believe Moses. Therefore, you don't believe me, and you don't realize that Moses was talking about me. All right, so Jesus wants us to, to look, in, at least in Moses, in the five, first five books of the Bible, to find Christ. But we also have to remember that it's not just the second person of the Trinity or the incarnate Son that we're looking for. We're looking for the whole Christ, right? Because when Jesus talks about himself, he's not talking about himself apart from his bride and his people. So when we look at the scriptures, we want to find Christ and his people. Another very popular one is Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so now we go from Moses to the prophets, uh, and this, when you talk about Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets, this is shorthand for saying the entire Old Testament, right? Everything in between, which would be the writings. 
So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's saying, ah, you see all of this in the law of the prophets? That's all about me, right? This is, this is what he's doing. Paul gives us an example of this in Romans chapter 5, where he says, Therefore, just as sin entered or sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed, well, first of all, let's make sure we're on the same page. Who is the one man here? Adam, right? Death came in through Adam. Sin came in through Adam. For for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, that's from sin to the law, it reigned, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, though not everybody disobeyed, sin still reigned, right? Could have been evil thoughts, lust idolatry, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be the exact same sin of Adam. Um, and it says, Adam, speaking of Adam, who, that's Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So now Adam is a type of the one who was to come. And this word, type, tupos, is the Greek word, and that is where we get our word typology from. Okay? Typological reading. I don't know if I put it in your notes, but if you go down to verse 18 of Romans 5, he concludes, not concludes it, but makes it pretty clear again. I think it's verse 18. Therefore, as uh, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So there he, he in one verse, contrasts Adam And Jesus, as a type, he's a type of the one who was to come. So if a type is a pattern, something similar, in what ways is Adam a type of Jesus? Because Paul tells us right here. But notice that Paul does it through um, contrast, right? Adam brings death, Jesus brings life. They're a type, but it's a type through contrast. So that's okay. Right? We have to be looking for the contrasts as well. But how else? If Paul tells us that Adam is a type, in what other ways is he a type? Firstborn? Keep going. Right? Yeah. Adam's firstborn of the old creation. Jesus is firstborn of the new creation. Federalism? So headship, right? Headship over creation was Adam's. Jesus has headship over all creation as well. Particularly, or not excluding, the new creation. What else? Yeah, right. So you got that, that typology through contrast there, right? Death and life, sin, righteousness, or justification. Yep. What else? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Through one man's disobedience came sin. Through one man's obedience came righteousness. Right. Another contrast. Typology through contrast. What else? What? Right. Yeah. Both have uh, both experienced the very presence of God. Both were created or born perfectly sinless as well. Only two in all creation that have experienced sinlessness in their life. Adam and Jesus. Ah, ooh. Strain, I like that one. Do tell. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Out of the side of Adam, he is put to death, the death sleep. He's torn open, and out of his side, he, God forms a bride. Jesus on the cross, being put to death, he gets stabbed in the side, and out of his side comes blood and water, which in John's theology, particularly what we've been looking at in John 3, I'd say that is salvation, right? The atoning work of Christ and the blood and the waters of baptism coming out of his side, and out of that he forms a bride. Absolutely. That's one of my favorites, actually. I like that. Okay. So even though Adam bears the consequences, Christ bears the sins of the whole planet. Okay. So you're saying that Adam bears the sins of the whole planet. He did. That's right. Yep, one is sinful, one is sinless. And uh, and Eve was still cursed as well. Right? So out of his side comes a cursed bride because he's likewise cursed, or in sin passes, right? And Jesus, out of his bride comes a not cursed bride, because what flows from Jesus is righteousness and cleanses us. Ah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So the Garden of Eden the very presence of God. In fact, it's the first temple in the Bible. Ezekiel makes this clear. And with sin, there's a separation from the presence of God. And then when the curtain is torn, there's coming back in. Yep, love it. All right, we could keep going, but we get the point, right? This is what Paul wants us to do when he says, yeah, Jesus and Adam, they're types. Well, in what way? And then this is how we dig into the scriptures. Say, man, how, how else? What, who are some other Adams in the Bible, I wonder? And how could Jesus connect with them as well? Noah is kind of like another Adam. Moses is kind of like another Adam. Abraham's like another Adam. Isaac, Jacob, each received the same promise of Abraham. So we can look for other Adams in the Bible and say, well, how does Jesus connect to these other Adams? Too? There's Adams all throughout the Bible. Adam is a huge figure, Right? Or how is Jesus contrasted with these other Adams? Good. Okay, uh, the next page there, that's just a little uh, graph for the word type that comes up in Romans 5. The top graph is ways that that word, tupas, is explained. 
uh, or translated, I should say. And then the bottom one, that's called the, the sense. In other words, this is the sense of the word. It's not the direct translation, but it's what the sense is communicating, what it's, uh, yeah, you understand, the sense of the word. An example, a model, an archetype, a character, an impression. That's, that's a big piece of tupas when, um, like, a stamp and a seal, or, a, yeah, that's right, a stamp and, like, a wax seal, when you press it on there and that wax takes the form of the, of the stamp, uh, the two look just, just the same, uh, and that's because it's, it's, it's a tupas, right? It's a type. It's, that's what it is. It's to impress upon and put your own image on them. So we are to be types of Christ, right, as we are to be formed into his image. As he presses upon us through the Spirit and through his word, we are to look more like Christ. So our entire lives is actually typological. And then when we see that, it actually makes sense of all of history. <laughs> but we'll get into that another time. Okay, uh, let's see here. I have a quote here by uh, Peter Lightheart. He says, typology can seem like ornamentation, frills, fancy stuff, right? Uh, what we really want from the Bible are the doctrinal truths or the moral guidance. But Jesus says that the entire Old Testament teaches about him. The entire Old Testament is about types and shadows. Typology is not an ornament, Typology is fundamental to our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, right? Without typology, we don't understand the Bible, and we won't understand who Christ is. We, if, if it wasn't for trying to connect Jesus to Adam, as Paul does, we will miss out on a lot about Jesus if we don't see him and Adam connected through this typology. Does that make sense? Like, Where in the Bible would we see that? Um, Jesus formed a bride out of his side, right? If Adam hadn't been a picture of that, or federal headship. It's there, but we get a clearer picture. It becomes high definition for us when we connect Jesus throughout the scriptures through typology. Okay. How much time? Okay, Galatians 4. I want to move through this fairly quickly, this, this passage, because... It is a very challenging passage. But this is just Paul, once again, giving us an example of typology. And he, he actually uses the word allegory, which for a lot of evangelicals, that's like a dirty word. You don't do allegory with the Bible. Yet Paul does. Um, he says this. Tell me, this is Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now he's going back to the law to explain, right? Do you not listen? Abraham says this. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So far, it makes sense, right? Hagar, Sarah, it's, it's all, it makes sense for us, right? All right, slave woman, free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. So now he's taking a very clear historical reading and saying, he's moving from here to here, okay? These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. 
She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem. It's like, wow, Paul, you're going all over the place with this one. For she is, uh, she is in slavery with her children. Before she just gave birth to a slave child, now she's in slavery with her children. And it's not just one, but it's multiple. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, pers- uh, born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What's going on there? I mean, I I put in your notes, and I'm, I'm, I'm painfully wrong in your notes, right? I say, Paul is not afraid to use allegory to interpret typological significance of Hagar and Sarah. That's true. Hagar and Sarah typology goes two levels deep. It goes way deeper than that. Do you see the connections there? Do you see what Paul is doing? What is he calling? We've got two categories, right? We have two mothers. We have two children, okay? And then he takes these two mothers and these two children, and he starts to do things with them and explain them in certain ways that are mind-boggling, to some of us. He says the two women are actually two covenants, but not only that, they're two mountains. One is Mount Sinai, and one would be Mount Zion, which is speaking of Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention Mount Zion. Um, so you've got two covenants. You've got a mountain. You've got slavery and you've got free. You have children. You have being born of, of Jerusalem, freedom in Jerusalem. So he connects Jerusalem to Isaac and freedom to Isaac and to, to Sarah. Uh, and then you have children of promise versus flesh. Then you have born according to the spirit as opposed to according to the flesh. That's in verse 29. And then you have a casting out and then a bringing in. So you got all sorts of stuff going on here that Paul is happy to work allegorically with, with the passage of Abraham, and Hagar, and Sarah, and Isaac, and Ishmael. So that's just another example. So when we say, how do we read the Bible? We should read the Bible the way the Bible reads itself. So now when we go back to Genesis, and we read the story of Ishmael and Hagar, how should we be thinking of them? Oh, this is the Old Covenant. Oh, this is Mount Sinai. Oh, this is, the free, this is slavery. This is, this is in contrast to, to freedom, to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem above, to the kingdom, to all of it, right? It, it, it's all there, multiple layers that Paul goes into in that passage. Okay, let me move on from there. Inverted typology. This is pretty cool. We don't want to be, um, we don't want to be guilty of inverted typology. In other words, thinking that typology and the, the realness of it, excuse me, is backwards, right? So what we tend to do is to think that 
Jesus's priesthood is actually the shadow, the spiritual, the more ethereal sort of piece of Aaron's priesthood, which was very concrete, flesh and blood, um, difficult. So if one is to cast a shadow over the other, Aaron would be the one that we can hold on to, right? If you're to hold up something and make a shadow, say, this is Aaron, the shadow is Christ. But that's not the case. Hebrews tells us the exact opposite. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is, is the reality. He is the, uh, in philosophy terms, he is metaphysics. He is what is really real. Everything else is built off of that reality of Christ. He is the ultimate reality. And everything that looks like him, they are the shadows. They are the types. They are the ones that are testifying, pointing to what is true. Um, so look at Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. Do I have that in there? No, not there. Okay. In your notes, it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Right? That word copies is tupas again. That's our type, which are types or shadows, typology of the real things. So what are the, what are the copies? The sacrifices, the priests, the temples, the altars. These are copies. These are the shadows of the real thing, the true things. But into heaven itself now appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 8, 5, and 6 starts off with this way. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, right? Reality is in the mind of God. Reality is in Christ. And before Christ came, what, what was before him it's, were the copies. So if you have the cross, right, and then all throughout history, the cross makes a shadow, and the shadow is the temple, the sacrifices, the, um, the washings, the, the priests, all of it, right? This, this piece is actually the shadow of what is real. So when we think about typology, we are looking for what is real, not for shadows of the real thing, okay? We, we want to live here. We are in Christ. We, want, we, we come to the ultimate <laughs> truth. And reading the Bible this way helps us understand that and helps us to embrace that and not feel like we are somehow existing as a shadow of something that is out there that's more real, okay? Does that make sense? Is there any questions on that? It's right here. <laughs> okay. In your notes, I, I'm going to, we're going to come back to that next section. I want to move on and do one more passage together. Um, we have eight minutes. So next week, I'm going to come back and do the, the priest, or if you want, this week, Look at Hebrews 7 and look for how Christ is the true priest. Actually, I'll just do it that way real quick. You guys can look through it and write your own notes. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is the ultimate priest, right? Um, 
Romans 1, particularly the first six verses, we see that Jesus is the true king. In John 4, the woman says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Christ comes as the ultimate prophet. In John chapter 1, which we've looked at for many weeks, Jesus is the tabernacle who tabernacled among us. Therefore, the tabernacle is the shadow. Jesus is the real thing, okay? John chapter 2, you have the temple. Hebrews 9, you have sacrifices. The law, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount is the, the new law that is given. Christ is the law speaker. And then Hebrews chapter 8 is covenant. Christ is the, is the new covenant. New covenant in my blood is what we say each week as we take communion. Um, so you can look through those and make notes all you want. The whole book of Hebrews is a really good exercise on how to read the Bible. Right Throughout Hebrews, we see that Jesus is superior. He is... He is more real, more excellent than, than angels, than Moses, the Abel, Sabbath rest, high priest, the entire priesthood itself, uh, the promises, the covenants, the sacrifices, the, the blood that was shed, all of it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Okay? All right. Now, which passage do you guys want to look at? We can look at Jehu and Jesus, baptism in 1 Peter, or exile in 1 Samuel, or Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And we'll come back and do these other ones next week, so we're not going to not do these. Jehu. Jehu. He is fantastic. If you guys have not read the story of Jehu, go to 2 Kings and read about the man who drove his chariot furiously, that those who were far off could see the way he was driving, says, that's Jehu, all right? He was aggressive with the way he rode. He's going, he's on a mission to destroy Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, people come out to try to stop him and say, hey, what are you doing? Is it peace? Are you good? He's like, is it peace? Are you kidding? Come ride with me. And they all jump into his caravan. They start going towards um, Jezebel to see her fed to dogs. Um, It is such a great story. It's a tragedy, unfortunately. Jehu's life doesn't end as a faithful king of Israel, but the parts that he is faithful in, it's like the, you know, it's like Braveheart or something, right? Gladiator, it's just a fantastic story. But when we think about Jehu and say, man, this is such a great story, there's, there's, a, there's parts of Jehu's story that say, man, this reminds me of Jesus. There's a scene, particularly in the end of chapter 9 and Mark 11, that we see this connection, this, this theme, that Jehu actually points toward Christ. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is anointed king. We could, let's just turn there. 2 Kings chapter 9. Starting in verse 12, halfway through, it says, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. So God is the one doing this. God's anointing him king. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him and the bare steps, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpets and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Doesn't that sound like something? Right? That's the triumphal entry, right? Jesus is the king. God says so. He comes in 
to Jerusalem, what does everybody do? They lay down their cloaks for him. And he walks over. And what does everybody say? Jesus is king, essentially. Right? Son of David, which is the same thing as Jesus, you're king. Right? They declare his king. So what does, what does Jehu do after he is anointed king? He's got a mission. Right? He has a mission. And this is uh, what comes up in, in throughout 9. He's going to wipe out Ahab's descendants. That's his mission. And this story culminates before his fall, not with the death of Jezebel, but all the way in chapter 10 when he goes and slays the prophets of Baal. And then he goes into the temple of Baal. And this is a fantastic story too. I'll just try to summarize it. Um, but he, he calls all of the, he, he's, he's in disguise, right? And he calls all of the, the prophets of Baal to come in and offer sacrifice. Let's have a worship service to Baal. So they all put on their vestments, their garbs, they get all nice and fancy to go into the temple. And Jehu's like, let's make sure there's nobody here who serves Yahweh. And so they all look around and say, nope, no one's here. He's like, okay, good. And then he, he basically goes outside and he's got 80 guys with, with weapons, with spears, with bows and arrows ready to go. And they're all in this, this temple together, all the prophets of Baal. And they, they go in and they just wipe them out. They knock the pillars down, the temple falls, kind of sounds like Samson too. And they all die. And he destroys the temple, right? This is the kind of the culmination of Jehu's kingship. Where Jesus, in Mark 11, the order goes, he is king. He walks in, they lay down their cloaks, they call him king, and then he goes into the temple and cleanses it, right? It's the same pattern that Jehu and Jesus, or they, they, they match each other. Certainly other things in between, but that's part of trying to find these structures is to see, oh, look at this story. This sounds like the story of Jehu. If all we knew was the Old Testament, Jehu would be one that we would all remember because the story is so good, right? So when, when Jesus comes, or we read the, the Mark's account of the gospel, say, wait a second, laying down the clothes, that's what happened to Jehu. Wait a second, he goes into the temple, that's where Jehu went. Like, this is the same story. Say, yeah, Jehu's story is a sign that points us to Christ. Jehu is a type of Christ. Christ is a better Jehu who doesn't end with disobedience, but ends as the victorious king, which Jehu should have been. <laughs> right? His story testifies, is found in the story of Jehu. So that was a pretty short one, but that's, that's, those are the sort of things that we want to do when we read the Bible. Are there any questions? No questions? Are there any thoughts? They don't have to be questions. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that is the best question to ask. 
It really is. That's, that's exactly what you want to ask. Say, okay, if that's the same, are, are the, the antagonists then compared? We did this with David and Goliath, right? If David is like Christ and is Goliath like Satan, yes, <laughs> right? Explicitly so. Now, in Mark, we'd have to read all of Mark and see the overall perspective of the temple. But if we were to read John, or if we were to go back and read Galatians 3 that we just, just read, um, we would see that the temple is the biggest antagonist of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, the temple is what Jesus comes to conquer, which if he conquers that, he also shows himself to be the new temple, which John is very explicit about. So if we were to read, what, what does the whole New Testament say? So we move out from con, uh, in, into context. So what does the whole New Testament say about the temple of Jesus' day? Well, they're children of Satan. <laughs> um, they're a harlot in Revelation. Um, they do all sorts of wicked. They cause little ones to stumble, whitewashed tombs. They are full of dead man's bones. I mean, it, it goes on and on, right? Woe to you, right? He is speaking to the temple cult. He's speaking to what the temple is and all of those who are represented in it as being demonic. That's the last word of the temple in the New Testament. You are demonic and you must go away, which is what ends up happening at 70 AD. And then Christ says, Christ says I'm the new temple. Um, so then you have that contrast with Baal's demonic, the people. So, yeah, absolutely. But you, you might have to do a few other, yeah, a few other steps before you go right there. And that's a part of being a good Bible reader is to, to, to make those steps, right? Not just to say, oh, well, we'll just make it a one-to-one correlation that Jesus or Mark is thinking of Baal worshipers when he's cleansing the temple. Like, well, may, maybe not. Maybe, but... Let's, let's do work to find out, is that, is that a, a good thought to have? And as you read the rest of the New Testament about the temple, you say, yeah, absolutely. Think, think about commentaries as being uh, part of your community, but they're not ones that you don't know these people very well. And you, you're interested in what they have to say, but you're not that interested until you are, right? So the best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. What tends to happen when we read commentaries uh, is we read it and we see the author's name one of the best commentaries, supposedly, ever written, ever, is, is D.A. Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John, right? It is like one of the highest-reviewed commentaries of all time. People say, this is the best commentary that's ever been written on any book, period. If I go to, to, to that commentary and start reading it before I do any of the work on my own or talk to, to my community or, or work through the text, uh, my, my opinions are going to be anchored to this commentary, right? And then we become like the baby Christians in Hebrews 5 that are not maturing towards, um, not growing towards maturity because we are just drinking the milk of D.A. Carson as opposed to doing the work ourselves. So I think that the best thing you can do is read your Bible, continue to read it, 
read your cross-references and go to the, the different passages. That's, that's a very easy little reference point in your Bible, so the cross-references. So what did these say? And then just think about it, you know? Ponder it. Keep reading and read and read and read. Come up with questions. Try to answer the questions on your own in the Scripture. Um, and not on your own, but you, you do all of that with community, right? So bring it to your community. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think, you know? Have you ever thought about this? And what you don't want to do is say, oh, let's see what D.A. Carson has to say. No, we'll do that later, you know? Like, I'm sure he's got great things to say, but... Yeah. It sound racist way, I'm 40 years old. <laughs> no, 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 it's it's good. It's, it's, it's far more, um, it's, not, it's not an orderly step, okay? So it's like, if, if this is Bible reading in your life, and you read a passage here, and then you have coffee with Toshlin here, but you haven't done all the context stuff, right? Go talk to her. Go, just, just do it, make it happen. It doesn't matter the order. Just keep reading the Bible and keep talking about it with people, and and get people to, to read it too, and um, don't worry about what well, I need to do, you know, my cross-references and my context studies and my historical background studies before I can go to community. Just do it all together. No, not for, no. <laughs> After. Yeah. Yeah, so, so some of the best tricks for Bible reading, right, is read the Psalms every day, right? Along with what, uh, read Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalms. Old Testament and Psalms are not the same for, for this example, right? Always be in the Psalms, be reading the Old Testament, read the New Testament, and then when you pray, pray the Bible. Like, I, I'm serious, like, and we've been doing this with our kids for, for months now. Um, we want to train them how to pray, so we, we pray scripture at night, and we, we, and we, at times, we still do kind of our own spontaneous prayers, you know, um, but we said, you know what, kids, we're going to, because I noticed that even in my own life, it was like, man, I'm just kind of praying a very simple childlike prayer for my kids every night, um, and we're just kind of in this cycle of, dear Jesus, thank you for today, pray we don't have any bad thoughts or any bad dreams, you know, help everybody go to sleep, thank you for my family, amen, that, that sort of prayer. That, man, we need to, we should be praying scripture. So we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray Psalm 1, we pray Psalm 2, we pray Psalm 23, we pray... Um, uh, the Beatitudes, we, and we'll open up. We got Psalm, there's a bunch of Psalms that we just pray through. Um, and the kids are memorizing it. And the kids are, it's getting into their bones. And now their prayers are actually formed by scripture, uh, which is one of the best habits you can get into. You know, when you want to sit down and pray, you're thinking, oh, I got to come up with just the right prayer and, and pour myself out. The Bible, is, it, it says it way better, right? It really does. And if we are, if the totus Christus, right, Israel, if we are in Christ, this is his words to us, 
Um, we are together. We are in Christ. He's given us his words, and he's given us his words to speak back to him. The Bible says, do not stop the public reading of Scripture, right? Keep, continue to do this. Speak my words back to me. Pray Scripture. The, the Psalms are prayers. Jesus prays the prayer. Uh, prays Psalm 22 when he's on the cross, right? This, this is all throughout the Bible of how we should pray, is pray the Bible. Um, that's not to say that our own written prayers or spontaneous prayers are wrong by any means, but if we can get into the habit of reading, uh, praying the Scriptures, then your own prayer life will be enriched greatly. And then that continues to get the Bible into you in a different way, too. It's really, it's really something to be able to open it up and, and even pray through, like, Philippians, you know, and, and just speak these words to God as a prayer. And it's, it, it, it's, it's good. It's right. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah, I don't think that, I would say the text doesn't really go there for us, right? It goes there individually with the prophets of Baal as far as they each had their own vestments and they have to find, is there any prophets of Yahweh or people of Yahweh here? So it's, it's a very individual level. But in the New Testament, we see the temple um, is represented by the Jewish authorities, but that it's, it's more of a collective sort of thing. And, and we see in the New Testament that many Pharisees come to know Christ and, and people are... They're not all like prophets of Baal, but the system as a whole is. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a better way to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Others? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Because Ahab receives his curse back with Elijah. And remember, he repents and then he doesn't. He says, "Okay, you you won't, but everybody in your family is done. You'll die a different way." So it was. It was. Yeah. That was like the fig tree, right? And then Jehu is the the temple, and then the fig tree is withered. It's dead. It's gone. Yeah, that's a great, great connection there, Caleb. Anything else? All right. Next week is going to be a lot of fun because this first Peter, all of these are really great, and they're, gonna, they're just going to be a lot of fun. And I'll, I'll have some more for us next week as well. All right.